there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. How's it going? I hope school and work are going great and that you're enjoying and hopefully learning from the amazing professionals and experts we've been featuring on T4C. If you aspire to being a CEO or an entrepreneur or an engineer, or if you have no clue what you want to do, but just want to learn more about an inspiring woman who grew up without a silver spoon in her mouth as the daughter of immigrant parents from Latin America, then you are in exactly the right place, my friends. But before I introduce you to her, if you haven't already signed up for the Java Junkies Journal, that's our weekly newsletter, giving you a sneak peek at all of the episodes we'll be dropping that week with an overview of each guest, head on over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org and sign up. And while you're there, check out the rest of the homepage and you'll see we've got all of our podcasts organized by profession. So hopefully no matter what you're interested in learning about, We'll have interviewed a professional in that career and also in health, wellness, and self-care because what good is it to have a job you love if your mental and or your physical health sucks? Now grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Natalie Molina Nino the CEO of Brava Investments and the author of the new book, Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs. Natalie is committed to delivering returns for investors while making a catalytic impact on women in the world. A technologist and a coder by training, Natalie is a consummate entrepreneur and a storyteller at heart. Natalie, welcome to Time for Coffee. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing well. I I feel a little ashamed to be a Colombian that doesn't drink coffee. So apologies. Oh my God. I can't believe it because my next question was going to be, are you caffeinated and ready to go? (laughs) You know what? If you, as you get to know me better, you'll see that the last thing I need in the world is more caffeine. Okay. Fair enough. So you are naturally caffeinated. I am. Maybe that's the Colombian in me. (laughs) (laughs) The Latina, right? You got a little fire, a little fire. Okay, Natalie, we're going to jump into the espresso shots. 10 quick questions to help Java junkies who are interested in breaking into the startup field, maybe who have an engineering background, maybe a little bit or none of the above, but who just want to learn more about how to get into these fields, kind of figure it out. First question. What entry-level jobs are available to young people who want to break into these fields? You know, internships are amazing, but as you and I know, sometimes geared towards people who come for means because any unpaid internship, while it might be amazing, an amazing way to break into a field is really only open to people who can pay for their own lodging and everything else, sometimes in expensive cities like San Francisco and New York. And so what I would go with is apart from seeking out those paid internships, there are grants, there are scholarships that allow you to basically 
pay for your own ability to take those unpaid internships. And so there, there are ways to sort of hack your way into those internships that are in fact a way to break into the field. And if you're older and you're not in college and an intern doesn't, internship doesn't seem like the right fit, another thing to do is to, and this is not less of a job and more of a way to break into the field, is to volunteer or get a job at an incubator or at one of these boot camps that teach people who didn't necessarily go to school to be, for example, engineers, but give you a six-month crash course into the field of engineering and let you walk out with a marketable skill. Nice. So just quickly, where can Java junkies find these fellowships or grants? Where can they find those boot camps? How can they search for them? Absolutely. One of the best ones around is called General Assembly. And actually, the founder of General Assembly is a leapfrogger featured in the book. But there are other ones like that. And the thing to look for is boot camp, coding. Those are sort of the keywords to look for. Incubators, accelerators, and you'll find them all over the country, not necessarily just in the big cities, but I'm finding them popping up in places like New Orleans, Detroit, Atlanta, Chicago, all over the country. Fantastic. So Natalie, what is a useful skill or skills that you look for at Brava Investments or frankly, at any of the places that you've worked at during your career? I think of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial skills as not a career path. People sometimes frame it as like, you know, I'm going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a journalist, or I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And I actually don't see it that way. I see it as entrepreneurship really being a life skill. And I think that everyone needs it. I think that no matter who you are, especially if you're exceptional at what you do, there's a really high likelihood that at some point you're going to be an entrepreneur. If you're a successful doctor, you may start your own practice. If you're a successful lawyer, you may decide to create your own firm. You know, all artists, all people in the world of, say, athletics, right, are ultimately entrepreneurs. Who's their boss, right? They're they're self-employed and they're marketing sometimes themselves as the key product. So I would argue the single most important skill that I look for and that a lot of employers look for is that entrepreneurial spirit. And how does that usually manifest? It manifests in my experience. One of the key, key indicators that I see is a level of accountability that shows that even if you have a boss and even if you are an entrepreneur within an organization, you behave as if you own the place. You lose sleep at night as if it's your (laughs) bottom line, right? And it doesn't matter how many levels down you are from the CEO. You act as if you own the place. You are accountable as if you own the place. And people notice. I certainly do. So obviously, I'm interested in this in particular because I think that could also have a negative connotation. There could be young people who, I'm sure you don't mean it this way, who might act almost entitled. And that's not what you're saying. No, I mean that thing that, and by the way, a true entrepreneur doesn't feel entitled in that sense, right? A true entrepreneur feels like they're accountable to their investors, to their customers. There is a sense of humility that a true entrepreneur learns whether they want to or not, because they usually get a slice of humble pie every week. And so when I say you own the place, I mean, you feel responsible. You feel the weight of not checking out on Friday at five o'clock when something isn't finished, because even though technically you're meant to have finished your day or your week, you have that added sense of integrity and responsibility that forces you and makes you feel compelled to stay until it's finished, right? Yes, absolutely. That's really helpful. Thank you. Natalie, is someone's major a deciding factor to get into the tech startup world? Absolutely not. 
And I say this may be self-serving because my path was circuitous, but also because what I notice is that the people around me have also taken really circuitous paths. And most creative people are the ones that have taken the strangest routes into entrepreneurship. In my case, I wanted to be an artist, but as you know, a good immigrant kid, I got the same lecture that I'm sure every immigrant kid gets, which is we didn't bust our butts to bring you into this country so that you could go be an artist. And so you, you get fed the line that, you know, you've got to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. I chose engineer. But what I ended up studying was environmental engineering because I wanted to save the environment. That was what I was passionate about. And then I accidentally started my first tech startup in 1996, right when the dot-com boom was getting its legs. And then I did that without having completed my graduate degree. I dropped out of school. And then 15 years later, I went back to school and I studied theater because I felt really strongly that the thing that gave me my edge in tech startups was not necessarily my engineering skills. And it was not necessarily my experience, even in my domain. It was that I was a fairly compelling storyteller. And so when I decided to go back to school 15 years later, I thought, let me polish that specific skill. Let me go work with real storytellers, people that are actually world leaders in the space. And I couldn't think of anyone better than the New York theater community. And I look now at my career, both as a tech founder and an entrepreneur, as well as now an investor. And I still still think that my secret sauce is my ability to tell a company's story and tell it well. And so that's my very specific path. Someone else will find theirs. But I think the important thing is to find the path that polishes the thing that you have a propensity to be amazing at. Yeah. Follow your strengths. Strengths. And I would say follow your strengths, not necessarily your passions. I have a chapter in my book that says, forget passion, focus on things you want to punch. Because I do think that we have too many people starting businesses or pursuing paths simply because this is something that they love. And I think that to your point, it's it's about what are you best at and also what is most needed in the market. Find things that make you want to punch somebody in the face <laughs> because somebody else probably feels the same way. And if you do that, you'll probably build something that is truly of need and of service. I think in this day and age, there are a whole lot of things people want to punch. So uh, good luck, Natalie. You've almost answered the next question, but how important is it to have a graduate degree, less so to break into the field, more so in order to succeed in the field of tech startups? I would argue that because the field of tech startups is about pioneering new areas, there is no such thing as a graduate degree that fits exactly what we need in the world of tech startups. It just doesn't exist. When I was working in the school system within engineering, they were teaching coding that was prevalent 15 years earlier, the kind of coding that we were doing in 96, there was no college program that taught it. By the time universities get around to looking at the latest technology, building a curriculum, hiring a professor and creating a class, that is now obsolete technology. And so when it comes to the world of tech startups, it's very much about DIY education. And I have a whole chapter in my book about that. You have to focus more on the apprenticeship model and possibly in the model that I mentioned earlier around boot camps that are able to move quickly and build curriculum fast. Nice. Natalie, what kind of life experiences do you think are most useful for someone starting out in this field? 
the number one most important one that I look for is the ability to bounce back from failure. I think that everyone can give you a story about a time that they've failed. And that's that's part one. That's a really important piece. And I look for that whether I was hiring people or, or now uh, looking to invest in people. But what I look for as really the second or maybe you know the other side of the coin on that one is stories about how people bounced. How resilient were they? How long did it take for them to dust themselves off and start up again? That sort of bounce is the quality that I think is the most important, whether you're in tech startups or graduating into where I am and starting to actually invest in these companies. I would love to destigmatize the way that young people and older people think about the F word, because I just think there is still such a negative connotation, less so, I think, in the startup world, but more so in the broader professional (laughs) world, that you have failed or you were fired or you were, you know, whatever. But I couldn't agree more with you, Natalie, that failing is the way that you you find out whether or not you've got grit. Absolutely. And I would qualify it as any kind of failure. This is what I look for. I look for, you know, I, I was talking to a woman who had a miscarriage at eight months. This is, it, I, I wouldn't classify that as a failure, but for her, it felt that way. And to hear how her brain and how her sort of emotional experience worked post that experience, it wasn't about, did you hurry up and, and try to get pregnant again? Did you hurry up and go back into the workforce? It wasn't about speed. It's about how are you processing it and what are you doing to both work within yourself and then without with the community around you to be sure that you are building all of the building blocks that you need to move forward, right? Are you working in community? Are you learning? Are you know, these are all things that are just amazing for me to observe, not as a binary, are you doing it well? Or are you doing it poorly? But really to look at qualitatively, how do you work in the face of failure? Amen. Okay, Natalie, what is the best part for you of being an investor? in the tech startup space? The best part of being an investor for me in particular is that I get to focus on the big problems. My thesis is not about focusing on investing in women entrepreneurs as much as I am a huge, as you can tell from the nature of my book, supporter of women entrepreneurs. I get to focus in my business in the in the narrow domain of finding solutions to the big, seemingly intractable problems of our world. So I'll give you an example. One of our companies is looking to take the first ever birth control pill over the counter. Another company that I'm looking at, if I will have anything to do with it, I hope, will be taking human mother's milk, safe, pasteurized human mother's milk and putting it in every store in America. These are the sorts of problems that I get to basically occupy my mind with every day. Mm. That is so awesome. Natalie, what is the flip side for you? Every job has aspects of it that suck. So what is it about your current job that sucks the most? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, I love the embracing of the word suck. The thing that I dislike the most, and this is the thing... This is the thing that I talk about in, in my book is is that sort of so, sometimes this pain or these these terrible things are the sort of the mother of your reinvention, right? I never imagined I would write a book. And the thing that I hate the most about my job is that as an investor, and this is true for all investors, we say no 99.9% of the time. That's our job. And so while, yes, I get to occupy my life with these big, amazing 
solutions, I also have to say no most of the time. And that's really the reason I wrote the book is I thought, look, if I'm going to say no, especially no to women entrepreneurs who I am committed to supporting, and it is absolutely my life's mission to do something to move the dial for them, then I better do something so that my no is a qualified no, or my no is no, but here are a set of tools that I've written just to help you on your way, because you might not be a good fit for me and my very specific investment thesis, but you are still doing an honorable thing. And here's some tools to help you. Excellent. What is the best career advice you've ever gotten, Natalie? (laughs) This is a little bit unusual, but the best career advice was a person at the one of the first companies that I did a joint venture with who I had gotten an opportunity to basically go from a, at that point I was 23 why was I? I was like 22. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I didn't know, you know, my behind from my elbow. And I got this opportunity to co-found this amazing multinational massive thing that was probably me punching way above my weight class. It was probably me being way over my head and outside of my field of vision and certainly my expertise at that point. But somebody entrusted me with this responsibility and I had this opportunity and I was debating whether to take it or not. And this person who I was working very closely with as a mentor said to me that it was dangerous to skip that many levels in my career all at once because one, the chance of failure was too high. And if I failed, the chances of me being able to recover and bounce back from my career and still be taken seriously and not having it be just a massive blow to my overall career trajectory was essentially too risky is what he was saying. And it was the worst, most BS piece of advice that I have ever gotten. I thought you were going to say it was the best advice. No. And what it did is it taught me two things. It taught me to smell BS when I see it. It taught me to diagnose when somebody is coming from a place of envy rather than a place of true goodwill. And it came from someone who was a respected mentor. And it also, which which also taught me how to distinguish and be discerning about what advice to take and what advice to drop. So what was the end of the story? Did you take that opportunity? I most certainly did. And what happened? You know what? I was 20, at that point, 24 years old, running a multinational in 16 countries. And I still didn't know my behind from my elbow, but I did it. And I managed and I learned and I could never have gotten to where I am today if I hadn't taken that risk. Oh, man, I love it. That is so fantastic, Natalie. Congratulations. So. Uh, We're almost to the end of our questions. Here's the second to last espresso shot. What movies, if any, what Netflix or Hulu's or Amazon shows or even fiction books do you think accurately depict the tech startup world? You know, I supported a couple of amazing filmmakers in the making of a documentary called Code, Debugging the Gender Gap in Tech. And the reason that I love that movie is because it tells an honest, thoughtful, well-studied story of how we got into the place that we're in. And the place that we're in is that today we have half as many women graduating with degrees in engineering as we did when I was starting. So part of why I'm back in the industry after having left thinking that I was fleeing the technology world is because I realized that I left the field no better than I found it. And in in fact, I would argue that it's in worse shape today. And so 
the documentary tells the story of how in the 80s, something shifted and it was a cultural shift. If you remember War Games with Matthew Broderick, right? There was this effort to create a sexy sort of we're going to save the world, you know, story and set of tropes around what it meant to be a coder. And somehow the word coding or the computing space went from being quote, you know, women's work to becoming cool guys who hack into NASA, who work in the basement and save the world. And that is what the covers of magazines, that is what the culture became largely to the exclusion of women or people of color broadly. And what the documentary tells us is it depicts and it sort of chronicles that story of how the current culture came to be. And what I love is that, you know, you cannot fix a problem until you've identified and named it. And this documentary absolutely does that. Well, we will for sure include that in our show notes. Final espresso shot, Natalie. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about this profession? One of my favorite stories that I think tells you this surprising thing about our profession is that coding isn't just about building widgets or creating some app to tell you how to order tchotchkes delivered to your front door. Coding can truly be something that moves the dial with social justice, with politics, with the environment, with all these things that we don't necessarily associate with coding. And I'll give you an example. We co-founded, I co-founded an organization called Athena Digital Design Agency. It sits inside of Barnard College at Columbia University. We teach women to code in all women environments because 55% of women at Columbia were dropping out of computer science classes within the first two weeks. And so we looked to build a solution around that. And what we got them was their very first customer. Once they learned to make websites, we showed them that they could do something with small local businesses. And their first client was Malala, thanks to our mutual friend, Eason Jordan. Right. And what it created was an environment at Barnard that taught all of these women in this college environment to associate coding, not with Facebook or Google, which are fine things to associate it with, but it created a bigger landscape and it created a sense that, well, if you're a coder, you can work with people like Malala. You can work with the professor who's building something amazing that's, you know, shifting the environment. You can help the local restaurant or the local nail salon. And it just created a bigger environment and it proved to this particular community that coding can be anything you want it to be, including helping a 17-year-old Nobel Prize winner. Gosh, if I were still a Java junkie in college right now, you've just made me want to study coding. <laughs> Good. You need that. <laughs> Natalie, thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the Java junkie community today. I wish you huge success with your new book, Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs, and with Brava Investments and everything you do. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.